Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 74. Great show, as always, if I do say so myself, and I do. Uh, before we go to my guests, though, to talk all about the wild happenings in the United States and seemingly around the world reverberating from Washington, let me do my song and dance, my pitch for Counterpunch as I hawk our wares here. Uh, Counterpunch is, I think, really critical in these times. Um, look, we have the the orange many-headed hydra in Washington now. We have, uh, you know, seemingly fascism on the rise. Uh, we have open Nazis acting like victims. We have all sorts of things going on. And uh, we need spaces online and in print that we can count on for the critical analysis, the critical perspectives. Uh, you know, that is... I mean, I hate to say it, but it is essential in these times that we get active in supporting our independent media outlets, active in supporting the journalism and the journalists that we can count on for that kind of analysis. And I think that Counterpunch is really, in many ways, uh, a, a leader of that pack. If you agree with me, one of the things you can do is get a subscription to the print magazine. This is a great magazine. It's a great way to support Counterpunch, and uh, you'll get a amazing, amazing columns regularly from Jeff Sinclair and from many other people as well, but you will also get really awesome feature stories including in the current issue of Counterpunch a little article called Trump and the Triumph of White Identity Politics by yours truly so if you want to read my take on what really drove the vote for Trump, you'll have to get yourself a subscription to the print magazine Um, also you can of course, donate to Counterpunch using the PayPal feature on the website, using all sorts of uh, various means, including uh, picking up the phone and calling Becky in the office or uh, shouting at Jeff Sinclair via Twitter or whatever it takes. But uh, there are many ways to support it, and I would urge you and encourage you to do that. Finally, of course, any positive reviews for this show on iTunes. We're also now on uh, Google Play Store, and it only took me like two and a half years to figure out I should be there. Um, and uh, any other way that you can support the show, spread it around to your friends, to your enemies, to the people you don't know, to the people you do know, whatever it takes. All right, all of that out of the way. I want to turn to my guest this week. I'm very happy to have him on the show. He's an amazing journalist coming out with consistently excellent work. It is, of course, Ben Norton. He is a journalist and writer with Alternet. Uh, you may have seen many of his columns previously on Salon. You can now follow his work on Alternet and, of course, also on Twitter at Benjamin Norton. Ben, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Glad to be here. I'm a huge fan of your work and your show as well. So thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Um, so look, we got we we have limited time and seemingly an unlimited number of travesties to discuss. Uh, <laughs> so let's get right into it. I mean, we're speaking here. It is uh, now Wednesday, January twenty fifth. How many days are we into Trump, and how much damage has been done? Well, five days now, and a lot of damage. Um, and the ultimate irony of this, I think, is uh, the extent to which Obama has extended executive authority and, of course, Bush before him. I mean, but both administrations is really evident in this past week. Um, every single day since Trump's inauguration five days ago, uh, Trump has declared a new executive order. You know, this week in the past few days, he's, uh, you know, declared some executive orders or it's been exposed that he will be 
declaring executive orders calling for uh, a ban on refugees and uh, the barring of people from uh, who have visas or are going to get visas if they're citizens uh, of seven Muslim majority countries, five of which the U.S. is currently bombing. Um, you know, he passed another executive order uh, recently banning EPA officials from posting on social media about their work or from speaking to journalists. So, I mean, I mean, we can talk more in detail about this, but it's it's astounding to see how, you know, Trump is in a kind of almost blitzkrieg style, if you will, pun intended. Um, he's just really, you know, uh, using his executive authority to the you know greatest potential that he can and pushing through these hyper reactionary measures really quickly. Indeed. And of course, I think you, you let off your comments there quite correctly by pointing out that we can really look to Obama and to Bush before him for having laid the groundwork for this. And it's it's almost, I mean, I hate to say it because there's this sort of I think, kind of nauseating instinctive reaction by many on the left recently to say, well, if you weren't protesting against Obama, you should shut up now. Well, it's not quite so simple, but there is a truth that needs to be spoken, and that is that Democrats and liberals find themselves in a very awkward position now of wanting to critique Trump's use of executive authority, knowing that Obama is directly responsible for it. Absolutely. And, and I agree with you. I mean, I have seen um, perhaps not a, not a widespread, but, um, you know, I have seen uh, a tendency among some people to try to in, almost in some ways excuse Trump uh, and, and, you know, use this kind of uh, argument that, well, you should have blamed Obama, etc. I mean, I, it's very clear. I agree 100 percent that we should be, um, you know, uh, very uh, patently opposed to what the Obama administration represented, and we should be very clear about what the Democratic Party represents, which is the continued tyranny of, of capital and Wall Street, which is the continued propagation of wars throughout the planet, etc. We should, you know, not have any uh, hesitation about criticizing that. But at the same time, Trump is now in power. Trump is now at the helm of the U.S. empire, and we don't need to make excuses for him. We don't need to, uh, you know, we don't need to blame Democrats for what he himself is carrying out. And, and um, it's interesting to see this kind of almost like reverse lesser evilism that some people are engaging in where it's like, well, uh, if you're criticizing Trump too harshly, it's you're going to help the Democrats. Well, no, I mean, we should absolutely be consistent in our opposition to, to both factions of the business party. Um, and right now, Trump is is really exploiting, you know, all of the, the tools in the toolbox that that both Obama and Bush have helped, uh, you know, put it put there for him. You know, the thing, the reason I bring that up, and Ben, I know that you're very active on social media as I am, and maybe I don't want to overstate how much this is happening, but certainly within that little weird corner of the uh, social media world that uh, people of the left inhabit, you do see a lot of this. And it's insane that after eight years of Obama, I find myself asking the question, are people on the left really going to do what happened eight years ago when all of those, when, when, so many people were saying, oh, well, if you got if, if you got a problem with Obama, what about Bush? What about Bush? <laughs> well, wait a second. Obama became president. Obama's open to criticism. How can you say that we should be, you know, focusing on Bush? Similarly, why am I going to sit here and everything is constantly about Obama when we literally have, in my view, a fascist in office 
exercising in many ways textbook fascist tactics. Now, I'm not suggesting Trump is Hitler. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that Trump's use of power and Trump's use of uh, ethno-nationalism and xenophobia and, I mean, he literally declared his inauguration day a day of national patriotic devotion. I mean, if that's not 21st century fascism, geez, I'm going to have a hard time finding it. Well, no, I agree with you. And and I think one of the problems with the discourse, the contemporary discourse around fascism is, is of course, the Nazi example. And, of course, that's in the most horrific example of fascism that we can imagine, the most genocidal example, uh, an absolute monstrosity in every single way imaginable. But, of course, fascism is not limited to just Nazism. There are many different tendencies within fascism, which is, in, in my view, I agree with the kind of um, theorization uh uh, espoused by people like Jay Sakai in his essay, um, Shock of Recognition, which I highly recommend. It's in the book Resisting Fascism, which is published by AK Press, which they're actually um, allowing people to download for free right now in a very you know opportune moment. Um, but it, in that essay, and, and you know Sakai is not alone, of course, um, he and other you know socialist uh, thinkers have articulated uh, a theory of fascism as the radical right, the revolutionary right. Um, and, and I think when you look at Trump's movement, I think when you look at other far right movements around the world, I think that that really is an accurate reflection of what we're seeing today. Um, and Sakai and others, and I agree with this analysis, don't necessarily use the term revolutionary in a positive way. They're arguing that the left does not necessarily have a monopoly on revolutionary politics. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you look at, for instance, events like Brexit, or even the election of Trump. I mean, these are in some ways revolutionary. I wouldn't say the election of Trump so much, but maybe Brexit. These are revolutionary historical moments in some ways, and they actually do have a mass base, but that mass base happens to be not necessarily the working class and certainly not the organized working class. It's mostly the petty bourgeois, the national bourgeoisie, elements of, you know, uh, hyper-nationalist, um, you know, declassed labor, people who have been been thrown into unemployment thanks to deindustrialization and outsourcing. Um, so you have this perfect storm thanks to the ravages of neoliberalism that we've seen for the past 30 years of, you know, uh, a middle class, especially in the U.S., a white middle class that has lost many of its traditional privileges, uh, that has seen the decay of, of the U.S. economy over the years through austerity, through privatization. And then, of course, they blame the boogeyman of uh, migration, of Muslims, etc. And and I think Trump absolutely in that way is a fascist. I mean, he does, you know, his movement certainly isn't grassroots in the way that left-wing movements like maybe Bernie Sanders' campaign or others are. But he he did have, you know, his shock troops, if you will. He did have maybe the contemporary equivalent of black shirts. And I think if we're looking at historical examples, um, like I agree with you, Trump isn't necessarily a Hitler-like figure. He's more like a Mussolini figure. Exactly. And, and that way, I think we should be very careful because there's been so much study, even on the left, of the history of Nazism, which is incredibly important because it's the most, you know, horrific regime probably ever constructed, or at least in modern history. But I think there's been significantly less analysis and study of the rise of Italian fascism, and in, in some ways that is even more instructive because. You know, whereas Hitler's rise was, you know, ostensibly through electoralism, but he wasn't necessarily personally elected himself. And, 
you know, after the Reichstag fire, et cetera, he expanded his powers. Well, in the case of in the case of Mussolini, this is someone who through also not through not just through traditional like bourgeois parliamentary systems, but also through the monarchy was able to, you know, become prime minister and then later assume dictatorial powers in 1925. So like in some ways, the Trump example could be more similar to the Mussolini example. And and I think it's it's worth studying that more closely. Absolutely. And I will say, just as an aside, I will take credit for having coined the term Midtown Mussolini. Uh, so <laughs> anybody using it from now and into the future can go ahead and uh, send the royalty checks my way. Um, but I, I agree 100% with what you're saying, and, and, it, and it really raises a very interesting question. And uh, I'm going to plug, if I could, my my article, which is a feature story in the current issue, the print magazine of Counterpunch, uh, entitled Trump and the Triumph of White Identity Politics, because I really believe that that is actually what we just witnessed, and that the narrative that Trump was some kind of a working class revolt is false. It is, in my view, 100% false, and the day does not support it. Now, this is not to say that there aren't millions of white working class people who back Trump for various reasons, some of them economic, some of them racial, and so forth. That is, of course, true, and that's self-evident. But if you actually dig into the data, Trump's revolt was a white revolt. He actually beat Hillary Clinton in, in the vast majority of wealthy suburbs, in the vast majority of areas of the country where wealth is common concentrated, that is not minority-dominated cities, and Trump actually represents, in my view, what needs to be called white identity politics, and that white identity is constructed in a very interesting way. It is constructed through a manufactured oppression. That's the key. What unites people who supported Trump is this notion that it is white America that is under assault, that whiteness and white America and white male, white, straight male, or whatever you want to call it, that that is under attack and that they are oppressed. Shared oppression, fake, but shared oppression, that's what really united them. Absolutely. I agree with that analysis. And and one of the things I think that's been interesting is looking at, there's a kind of social democratic analysis that some people have articulated. And then I think there's a, a more revolutionary analysis. Um, and, and, and I think yours leans much more toward the latter but I do think there's a grain of truth in the social democratic analysis. So, I mean, so what I'll say is one of the arguments put forward is that, as you said, uh, Trump's tr- victory was due to uh, the disenfranchisement, if you will, of the so-called white working class. And I would problematize that in the first place by arguing there's no such thing as the white working class. There is only the working class, exactly. which is international. Exactly. And there are white workers. Thank you. And and it's, it is true. We should recognize, you know, the New York Times published a story last year that white workers, that's not the white working class, those are workers who are white, among other workers, have been incredibly hurt by neoliberalism. There was a study that found that, uh, you know, white, lower class white people in the U.S. have been dying at higher rates. They have an increasing, like a a lower rate of, um, an increasing rate of mortality and a lower life expectancy, etc. But that's, of course, not limited to just white workers. That's true of the working class. So I think it's important to like look, as you said, look at how the effects of neoliberalism on white workers is not just tied to the, uh, you know, the kind of 
so-called, you could say, disenfranchisement, I would say in some ways um, the decimation of uh, local economies through NAFTA, through et cetera. But it's also important to look at how that's tied to racial privilege. It's tied yes. to white supremacy. So the traditional notion of the American dream, right, is that especially if you're white, but even if you're not white, uh, if you work hard, you have a family, et cetera, you can have this nice job, you can have a nice home, et cetera. And for many people, especially for black Americans, the, it's always been very clear that the American dream was a myth. You know, Malcolm X called it the American nightmare. Well, for, for white people, you know, there was still, in many ways, this conception. I mean, not for poor white people, but for the middle class, for even, you know, working people like organized working class, uh, you know, workers who maybe were in unions, et cetera. And that was, of course, decimated uh, by the rise of neoliberalism. I mean, there was a kind of agreement made during the Cold War where in order to uh, prevent any kind of socialist revolution in Western and capitalist countries, there was a kind of agreement between state and organized labor where they would allow some degree of unionization. They would allow some degree of a welfare state to shield society from the kind of revolutionary activity they saw in not just in Eastern Europe, but in much of the global South. Yep. And in the past 30 years, uh, not only has, you know, the economy been desiccated through, you know, neoliberal uh, policies, but white privilege itself, white supremacy has been, I think, you know, fortunately, I think it's been on the defensive as opposed to on the offensive. Um, you know, anti-racist activity throughout the world is, is going on, especially in Western countries. Um, you know, there's there's a normalization in some ways of multiculturalism and these other ideas that perhaps were not as uh, prevalent in the past. And when you couple those two things together, when you have these two simultaneous phenomena, I think that really does lead to a rise of the kind of far right white supremacist politics we're seeing, where the loss of patriarchal right, the loss of, of white privilege is blamed on migrants, on Muslims, on, you know, uh, these problems that people are genuinely facing. So I, in many ways, I think I agree 100% with your analysis. And I think the social democratic analysis that I've seen articulated by some people that might not completely excuse racism, but in some ways maybe rationalizes it, I think that analysis is missing half of the picture. Well, and it it it... It, I wouldn't even necessarily say that they're, you know, rationalizing it. What I think that, what I think that that analysis does is it minimizes the role of white supremacy in this broader narrative because, well, for, for various reasons, I think partially a real desire to see a working class upsurge, a real working class upsurge. And so instead they're accepting the chimera of one, the appearance of one, which is not really what we saw. Look, I, I poured over a lot of data. There's, there's great studies out there that really demonstrate this point. Here's, here's a very interesting thing that came out of uh, an analysis conducted by Gallup. Uh, and it found that, in fact, Trump's biggest base of support was not in communities where immigrants have moved in and uh, taken over real estate, taken over jobs and so forth. Actually, his support was strongest in the most 
all white, most segregated places. And so what that tells you, in fact, and what the data shows is that it's not, you know, like, and I wrote this in the piece, it's not like South Park, you know, they took our jobs, you know, it's not, it's not them taking our jobs. It's the idea that they might take our jobs. It's not them moving next door. It's the idea that they might move in next door. You know, this is this is really what it comes down to. It comes down to this manufactured feeling of oppression. And one last point that you just made that I think is critical. You said, you know, uh, uh, whiteness and white supremacy. That's absolutely correct. And the word that I would use is ownership. If you look at uh, Make America Great Again, if you look at its analog in Brexit called Take Back Control or Take Back Our Country, if you look at the slogans that are being employed by Marine Le Pen and the National Front in France or by Jobbik and the Hungarian fascists or by the fascists in the Netherlands, it all revolves around the country that we own is being stolen from us and we need to take it back. Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned the example of France and the Netherlands, because it's important to understand that the rise of this neo-fascism is global. And it's not limited to just the West. I mean, you mentioned Marine Le Pen, the national front. Marine Le Pen, unfortunately, may actually be the next president of France, which would be catastrophic. Um, And then Geert Wilders looks like he could potentially uh, be the next prime minister of the Netherlands. That's not as, uh, you know, uh, clear because he would have to get a majority in uh, the parliament, which might not happen. But it's also international in the sense that it's not just limited to the U.S. and Europe. In India now, for a few years, Narendra Modi has been uh, at the helm of a very large country, the second largest country in the world. Modi comes out of the RSS, which is a fascist paramilitary. It's an extension of the BJP, which is a far-right Hindu nationalist party. You know, so this is a global phenomenon. And then, of course, in, in Japan, you have Shinzo Abe, who is part of a far-right, you know, fascistic group that wants to restore the Japanese empire. Um, it's very patriarchal. And what ties all these together is, you know, even in the example of India, and even in the example, to a lesser degree, but still in the example of Japan, where white supremacy may play a role to some degree, but not in the same way it does in the West. You also see the the rise of this patriarchal right again, um, where, you know, the privileges that men have traditionally have over women as their property, as, you know, subjects to their rule have been whittled back over the years, you know, thanks to mass organized movements of, of women and, and comrades. Uh, and, you know, you see these groups in the case of India, you see, far-right Hindu nationalists who want to subjugate women. In the case of Japan, you see, you know, Japanese nationalists who want to restore the empire and whittle back the gains that women have made legally there. So, I mean, there are a lot of commonalities tied here. And, and I agree that looking at it just as a, from, from the perspective of class misses a lot. But at the same time, we also need to understand that fascism is rooted in a kind of class politics, which is often, as you mentioned, it's petty bourgeois. It's not necessarily the big bourgeoisie that is pushing for these movements. So, you know, uh, Apple and, you know, these large international conglomerates weren't necessarily the ones who were supporting uh, Donald Trump. In fact, many of them were behind Hillary Clinton. Wall Street, at, you know, in July 2016, the Wall Street Journal released a report that found that Wall Street was giving more than half of its donations 
to Hillary Clinton. Um, so in many ways, she was the preferred candidate of international capital. But there were still very important segments of, of the national bourgeoisie and, and, of course, of the petty bourgeoisie who backed Trump. And it's also very important to make it clear from the beginning when we're talking about this, uh, this is especially true in the U.S., where voter turnout was slightly above half, but it's nearly half of Americans, half of eligible Americans didn't even vote. And this isn't even considering the millions who have been disenfranchised. Um, but it, the, the working class in most Western bourgeois democracies simply doesn't vote. You know, most poor people don't vote. In the U.S., if you look at the, the incomes of people who vote, it really heavily skews toward you know, people who have more money. Um, so when people talk about, you know, poor white people voting for Trump, actually most poor people in general, including poor white people, but also poor people of color, simply didn't participate in the election. Um, elections are largely decided by, you know, uh, more accommodated working class and middle class people. Um, and in the case of Trump, as you mentioned, I mean, yeah, he got the majority of white voters and many of those white voters come from that economic background. They're not they're not the poorest of the poor. That's right. And and while I do agree with what you were saying, I, I want to just add a little uh, counterpoint. Um, yes, absolutely, that the, the, let's call it big capital, certainly finance capital, was predominantly behind Hillary Clinton. No doubt she's a handmaiden to Wall Street and neoliberalism has been for decades, as has her husband and the entire Democratic establishment, Democratic Party establishment. But one thing that I pointed out, and I wrote a piece, it was in Counterpunch like uh, 11 months ago or 10 months ago, way, way before a lot of people were really taking Trump all that seriously. And I made the point that even at that time, it was clear to me that even big finance capital and the big and the big, uh, you know, corporations were hedging their bets on Trump as well. That's how you that's why you saw Steve Mnuchin uh, or however you pronounce his name on Trump's advisory team. This is one of the kings of hedge fund hedge funders on Wall Street, a close uh, associate of George Soros, somebody with a deep tie to both Wall Street and to Hollywood. This was the person advising Trump on on economic policy, on finance, and so forth. Similarly, you saw neocons in his ear on foreign policy, and all kind and, and a rogues gallery of advisors that has really translated into a rogues gallery cabinet. And so, from my perspective, even back in 2016, or in the, even in the summer of 2015, it was clear to me that Trump, yeah, in, in one sense, he was a threat to the establishment merely because he was not uh, predictable, not somebody that they could really, you know, pencil in and know exactly what they were going to get. But at the same time, he was also somebody that they could deploy their agents out to work, to massage, and to, ge to gently nudge in the right direction. And that's exactly what they've done. For sure. I mean, I do agree. I, I'm certainly not saying that he did not have any support among, you know, large international capital. But, um, of course, what he represents, this this right wing, in some ways, nativist politics. I mean, it's not really nativist. It's simply more fascistic, of course. But his opposition to neoliberal trade deals, for instance. I mean, of course, this is a guy who is hyper capitalist, uh, who is currently pushing through extremely right wing capitalist measures. But at the same time, Trump is not a neoliberal in the sense that Clinton is. Um, you know, Clinton, yeah, one of her right. leaked speeches uh, showed that she dreamed of a world with, with no borders 
and free trade. And, you know, of course, to many leftists, the notion of no borders sounds amazing, but but not in that way, not in the free trade way. And there's, of course, a kind of, um, you know, if you maybe look at something like the political compass, I mean, I have issues with that construct. But if you if you think about neoliberalism as a an economic uh, system and political system that, you know, is the embodiment of classical liberalism, so that has take, takes a kind of libertarian view on not just economics, but also on on social issues. Well, Trump is, of course, much more authoritarian in his in his social outlook. Um, so there's no question that he's capitalist and had support from large segments of, of capital. But the fact that he, in his first week, uh, withdrew from the TPP is very significant. And, you know, as much as, as a danger as he is, uh, this is an, a very interesting development. Um, you know, you have a Democratic president who was pushing for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a global neoliberal trade agreement written by large corporations in, in secret. And that was only able to be destroyed in the U.S. by this fascistic, even outright fascist candidate. That's a very dangerous development. Um, so looking at his relation to capital is, is interesting. And I'll make one more point. I don't want to keep blabbering on here. It's, no, it's no, also no, no. Blabber important. away. Blabber away. <laughs> It's also, uh, don't tell me that's dangerous, but it's also very important to be clear that now that he's in power, capital is flocking to, to Trump's administration and they're, you know, kowtowing and willing to do his bidding. I mean, this is the most p- powerful man in the world now. So we now know that at least seven m- m- senior members of Trump's administration are former or in some ways uh, present, but former Goldman Sachs officials. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is, this is a candidate who for, points, uh, you know, during his ca- uh, campaign, criticized Goldman Sachs and other banks. And now he's surrounded by people who work for the, the vampire squid, if you will. Um, and then, of course, it's also important to remember the letter that IBM's CEO sent to Trump after he was elected, uh, volunteering IBM, one of the world's largest technology companies, to help fulfill his goal, um, even kind of indirectly hinting that the corporation may help work on his anti-migrant and anti-Muslim policies. So, yeah. I mean, now that now that he's president, there's no question that he has most of international capital behind him. But during the campaign, it was a little more complicated. I, I agree with that. And, and let me just say, as an aside, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely shocked that IBM would offer to work for a fascist regime. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? It's not like they helped the Nazis. I know. That's what I'm getting. I, thank you. I, I guess I probably should have made that explicit if people didn't know what I was <laughs> alluding to there. Yeah. IBM uh, very much involved in the Holocaust and uh, working with the Nazis in the 1930s. Anyway, um, absolutely. Yeah, there's a very good book for listeners. It's called IBM and the Holocaust. And it details how, I mean, IBM and other American corporations, including, of course, Ford, but also you know, many of the corporations that still exist today were profiteering. Brown Brown Brothers, Harriman, Wall Street banks, and so forth. And the Koch brothers' father. Exactly. Uh, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So, but I do want to touch on uh, another aspect of this as well, because 
absolutely. The you mentioned the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's a really interesting moment here where you have this uh, far right president who, for you know, for all intents and purposes, is like at least politically speaking, evil personified for a lot of people, and yet he does smash this really odious international uh, agreement that Obama was pushing that would have been really Obama's signature trade agreement, Obama's NAFTA, if you would. So, so in the, on the one hand, it's like, wow, Trump did something good. On the other hand, I, I do believe personally that we really need to take a critical look at just what happened because really the Trans-Pacific Partnership is not in, in and of itself, purely a trade agreement. This was a political and strategic uh, framework from which the United States intended to isolate China in East Asia, in the Asia Pacific, to exclude China from this agreement, thereby using it as a means of power projection or soft power, as it were, for the United States in a region that it is increasingly being pushed out of. And here you have Donald Trump, the most rabidly anti-China president we've pro- we've had in modern times certainly the the you know one that is openly boasting about confrontation with China and he smashes this policy and you have to ask yourself why and i would argue the reason is because trump wants to attack china from a more head-on direction he doesn't want this long-term slow game where the united states is jockeying with china here and there but also cooperating he doesn't like the agreement for various reasons and instead wants to go after the Chinese directly. That will be in the South China Sea. That will be in the Philippines. That will be in a, in Taiwan, of course. We've already seen with the uh, phone call and the questions about the One China policy, North Korea, many other examples where Trump is far to the right of Obama on China. So I think it is through that lens that we really need to critically look at this smashing of the TPP question. I agree 100%. And your analysis, I think, is very interesting and refreshing. I haven't heard that angle. Um, it, it is important to underscore the fact that uh, the TPP was explicitly created to undermine the growing role of China in the global economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I agree that China is ultimately, even above Russia, uh, the enemy, you know, the persona non grata for U.S. and Western imperialism. And I agree uh John Pilger, the you know longtime muckraking documentarian and journalist, has a new film called *The Coming War on China*, and I mean I agree with the fundamental thesis of it, which is, you know, the policies of not just the Obama administration but also the Bush administration. The policies for the past decade, accelerated under Obama, have moved toward more and more aggression against China, and you know, in many ways, China is the only real superpower right now that that can challenge U.S. hegemony on the global stage. China is the largest country in the world. It has a rapidly growing economy. You know, there are, of course, many problems with the Chinese government internally. But when you look at the problems of the governments throughout the world, I mean, uh, it's easier to be more optimistic about China than than the U.S. and Europe, that's for sure. And, you know, not just Trump, but Western you know, imperialists, those who are so thoroughly invested in in Western empire. You know, we talk about neocons, but not just neocons. I mean, liberal interventionists. The Obama administration have all seen China and recognized it as this growing threat. 
uh, Obama's policy of pivot to Asia, I think ironically, is going to pave the way for Trump to take a more aggressive policy. As you mentioned, right off the bat in the first week, Trump has already escalated tension with China. There's been talk of a potential trade war, which could be catastrophic for not just the U.S., but even the Chinese economy. Although I think in many ways, the Chinese economy could be more insulated from the effects of something like that. But at the end of the day, I do think that we're, we may potentially see rapprochement or at least some easing of tensions with Russia. I'm a little skeptical about whether or not Russia can ever truly be a U.S. ally. But there may be under Trump and if these other far right leaders such as Marine Le Pen and Geert Wilders uh, win and, you know, become the heads of state of their respective countries, there could be an easing of tensions with Russia. But I think that will come at the expense of an, a rapidly accelerating tension against China. And in some ways, that could be even more dangerous. I mean, I still think, to be clear, I think we should still be firm in our opposition to Western aggression against Russia, because that is very dangerous development that continues to go on. I mean, NATO right now has thousands of troops on Russia's border. Uh, the U.S. just sent hundreds of tanks and armored vehicles. You know, uh, under the in the last few weeks of the Obama administration, there was a rapidly accelerating um, atmosphere of fear and violence that could explode. But so we should we should be clear that that is still a possibility. We should be opposed to that. We should have a, a very critical eye on what U.S. policy and Western policy is toward China, because I think that could shift in some way. Well, and I think that we also need to have a very critical eye on the role of Russia, because while on the one hand, it I, I think it is absolutely uh, essential for anybody on the left, anybody interested in peace, anybody who's ever done uh, anti-war activism uh, to be focused on, you know, avoiding nuclear confrontation, avoiding war with Russia, avoiding conflict, as we saw stoked by uh, first the Bush administration with the uh, completely bogus so-called missile shield, which was obviously an aggressive posture against Russia, expanded by Obama, of course, and accelerated since 2014. At the same time, we cannot hide our heads in the sand to the fact that Russia and Russian media, it must be said, has cultivated a lovey-dovey relationship with the far right all across Europe and in the United mm -hmm. States. Anybody who's watched RT or Sputnik or any Russian media over the last year, it is unmistakable which candidate they were supporting, what they were cultivating in terms of political grassroots support inside of the United States. Similarly with Marine Le Pen, it's it's like endless adulation for Le Pen and for the so-called nationalism uh, growing in Europe. And it's obvious why Russia would cultivate that for very pragmatic uh, political reasons. But from the perspective of those of us who are in opposition to the rising tide of fascism, it must be understood that this is pure power politics <laughs> that could blow up in their faces and blow up in everybody's face. Because frankly, once you unleash this kind of far-right element into the body politic in the United States and in the European Union, it's not something that can be contained. Absolutely. And I mean, this may actually in some ways be controversial to some leftists out there, but I think I, I'm, I'm, it's refreshing to hear that analysis. And I think it does need to be articulated more and more. I mean, it's hard to do so in a kind of nuanced way in the U.S. in particular, because there's such extreme Russophobia <laughs> and, you know, the Democrats attempt to blame 
you know, their abject failure in this election on Putin is completely risible. Yep. I mean, I, I can't stop laughing at it. It's, I mean, you know, it's, you know, Russia may have potentially been involved in hacking, although there are strong reasons to believe that it was an internal DNC leak. Yeah, I'm not but buying even, that. Yeah. Yeah. But even if that were true, I mean, we're not talking about a significant impact on the U.S. election. I mean, we're, uh, but that, that's a whole other conversation. But I do think it's very important to look at, at not just the Russian government, but to look at the far right in Russia, because yes. people forget it's like the far right in Israel. People forget that Netanyahu is not the far right in Israel. Netanyahu is certainly what I would consider far right, but there are actual fascists, Naftali Bennett, Avigdor Lieberman, Ayelet Shaked, who are firmly to his right, who consider him a centrist and disparage him as a centrist. Yeah, there are people to, to the right of them, the Kahanists and the like, Absolutely. literal Nazis, Israeli Absolutely. Nazis. You know, so yeah, and, I mean, in, in a sense, Netanyahu is like center. Absolutely. And in Russia, this is true as well. I mean, yeah. Putin, I, I, he's certainly right wing. He's absolutely a capitalist. And I would invite actually, you know, uh, leftists who are interested to watch an interview that Amy, uh, not, not Amy Goodman, that Abby Martin recently did uh, with Mark Ames. Mark Ames is a, uh, a lefty journalist who does great work, who lived for a decade in Russia, and he edited the publication The Exiled. And this is certainly someone who's not an apologist for U.S. imperialism in any way, and who understands Russian politics, I think, very uh, with great nuance. And he discusses how it was U.S. policy that led to the rise of figures like Putin, of course. I mean, with not only the destruction of the Soviet Union, but with the subsequent um, manipulation of Russian elections, the imposition of very harsh neoliberal shock therapy, um, you know, giving rise to these kinds of oligarchs that we see in Russia today that now are being demonized by Western Empire. Um, but at the same time, I mean, Putin is not at the far right of Russian politics. No, I mean, he's certainly right wing, but there are people like Alexander Dugin. Thank you. And Dugin, Dugin is a very dangerous person. Many, I, th I think many people should familiar familiarize themselves with his work. I mean, this is a fascist philosopher that has some ties to the Russian government. He's still independent in many ways, but he is pushing for a, a fascist politics that he calls the fourth political theory. I mean, I would call it third positionist politics. I mean, it is pretty classical fascist. I mean, looking at, you know, the way he tries to position, position himself as not part of the left or part of the right, which is classic third positionist fascist politics. I mean, combining this radical right nationalism with some kind of maybe ostensibly left-leaning discourse economically. And what's complicated and interesting about and dangerous about this Russian fascist movement is that there's this kind of pan-Europeanism. And there's this conception that Russia is a truly European country. And if only it were not for the, those dastardly Bolsheviks, whom many of these Russian fascists uh, consider Jews and foreign elements, which is, yep. you know, rooted in this anti-Semitic Nazi sentiment. But the argument is that there's this notion of the Atlanticism. There's this you know, globalist, in, in some ways, there's this, you know, they t have this kind of anti-Semitic conspiracy about NATO and Atlanticism and the World Bank and the IMF. And, of course, there are very significant critiques of these hor horrific capitalist imperialist institutions. But what these fourth positionists, third positionists, what, you know, these Russian, Eastern European fascists uh, position themselves as are this kind of white European force that should unite with Western Europe against the evil Muslim hordes who want to destroy the planet. 
And, you know, that does actually have some real significance and it it is gaining some support in Eastern European countries that yeah. have lurched to the far right since the collapse, since the destruction of the Soviet Union. I mean, you mentioned Hungary earlier. Hungary right now, Viktor Orban is considered a kind of centrist figure and you have actual neo-Nazis in the Yabit party who are using an inverted swastika as their flag, who are gaining power. And of course, this is not limited to just Hungary. Poland has a far right government. I mean, the far right is on the rise throughout the region. And, you know, who knows what will happen? Some of these far right right movements are anti-Russia, but some of them are also pro-Russia. And we should, you know, as you said, be very wary of this and especially be wary of the potential of a pan-European fascism. Because that could be so destructive. Well, that's exactly what's being cultivated, and I I, I know uh, uh, quite a bit about about Dugan and the Dugan movement. First of all, people should know the term that they use to to, to peddle this sort of ideology is called Eurasianism. That's the term they like to use, and they call it civilizationalism. That is to say that Eurasia, as they conceive of it, is a single civilizational unit. But with it, if you probe deeper into Dugan's uh, viewpoint, it's actually really, essentially, it is Russian imperial revanchism is really what he's after. And this notion of the Bolsheviks as as having kind of derailed the the, the progress of that uh, civilizational model, that is also rooted in the uh, deeply reactionary Russian Orthodox Church. And the Russian Orthodox Church's resurgence over the last number of years, cultivated by Putin and, uh, you know, people who have used it for political expediency, that is driving a lot of this extreme fascistic element. So you have Dugin and Dugin's Eurasianist movement. You also have this bizarre uh, sort of worship of the czar, worship of the monarchy, uh, this kind of resurgence of a, a love affair with the Romanovs. That's a a critical part of this as well. And then, of course, you also have Russian ethno-nationalists, that is to say, real Nazi skinhead types who see the critical issue in Russia being migration from the former Soviet republics of Central Asia, the migrant workers from Turkmenistan or from uh, uh, Tajikistan and those countries coming into Russia and defiling, uh, you know, the Russian nation. All of these ideologies being mixed together, which amounts to what I would consider to be probably the principal hotbed of fascism anywhere in the world at this point right now being Russia, maybe short of uh, Kiev and the current Ukrainian government backed by the United States. So that is part of this bizarre melange of forces that we have here where Russian fascists have gone streaming into eastern Ukraine to fight U.S.-backed fascists and Nazis who are uh, in power in Kiev. In that way, you have this sort of intra-fascist conflict going on in Ukraine, while at the same time, Russia backs fascism all over Europe. It is a bizarre but rather striking reality that we're looking at. Final point on Dugin, part of that fourth political theory and Eurasian uh, civilizationalism or whatever shit they want to sell it as, it is really a form of global apartheid. In their view, and by the way, I want to I give credit on that term to Alexander Reed Ross, who was on this show talking about Dugin with me and used the term global apartheid. Uh, I want to say like episode 30 something or other, you'll have to go and find it. But in any case, 
place. It is the idea that the that the darkies stay in the dark countries, the whiteies stay in the white countries, the browns in the brown countries, and so forth. I'm, of course, vigorously air-quoting as I use those terms. That is the conception that Dugan uses. That's the formulation of this fourth political theory, and that is what is being peddled all over Europe under the guise of nationalism. It's also important to understand that in many ways, uh, and, and I say this not... Um, not to say that it grew out of it, but it's important to understand that this is the same politics of Zionism yes. and the Zionism as a movement. Yes. This is why this is one of the reasons that Israel is so adored today by the far right. I mean, part of it is also because Israel is seen as a bastion against the evil Muslim hordes. And, you know, there's this conception that even though many neo-fascists are anti-Semitic, there's no question, they are willing to unite with Jews against Muslims whom they despise even more. But at the same time, it's not just that rooted in in the fact that all these far right movements and the fact that Steve Bannon, uh, the fascistic former head of Breitbart, who's now the right hand man of of President Trump in the White House in the Oval Office, um, he was invited to speak at the annual gala of the Zionist Organization of America, because it's important to understand that what they see in Israel, uh, you know, an ethno state based on a particular ethnic and religious paradigm that citizenship is based on, that is opposed to refugees, that is opposed to miscegenation, that is opposed to multiculturalism, that is their model for their respective countries. Mm -hmm. And I'm not trying to say that in any way, I should make it very clear, because, you know, sometimes the word Zionism is thrown out way too much, and it's, you know, exploited by anti-Semites, etc. I'm not in any way trying to say that these far-right movements are in, are have their origins in Zionism, not at all. I mean, they go back much further. Uh, you know, these far-right movements are, if anything, rooted in classical fascism and rooted in the nationalism of countries like Germany and Russia in the 19th century. I mean, it's important to understand the white army as, you know, this hyper-revanchist uh, Russian nationalism as a protozoa of fascism. And, of course, the Freikorps in Germany. I mean, fascism grew out of these movements. But I'm simply pointing out that one of the reasons that Zionism is admired by all these movements is because they share the same ideology and they want they want the same for their respective peoples. And that is why it's also very important to, you know, not only defend things like multiculturalism and anti-racism and opposition to, you know, patriarchy and white supremacy, etc., but also to continue opposition to, you know, when even when there is an unfortunate rise in anti-Semitism, the only way to oppose anti-Semitism is also to also to oppose movements like Zionism because they feed each other in a in a dialectical way. Just like the only way to oppose white supremacy in the U.S. is to is to is to fight back against these kinds of you know racist ideologies. Oh, there's no there's no doubt about that. Um, all right, we got to take a break. We're way overdue for that. Let's jump to that. <laughs> we will come back. We'll pick up right there. Got a lot more to talk about for the uh, you know for the, uh, the the future of the next four years. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Stick with us. I, I am going to be uh, continuing the conversation with Ben Norton here. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. Nothing 
Radio. I'm chatting with Ben Norton. Uh, you can follow his work at Alternate. It is top notch. I highly, highly recommend it. Also, follow him on Twitter at Benjamin Norton. And um, so, before the break, we were talking a bit about uh, uh, fascism in Europe and uh, you know the some historical antecedents and and how it's manifesting today. And you made a very critical point about Zionism, which I think is is key. Uh, now, the question is. Are these fascist movements, uh, are they individual? Are they linking together into a broader movement? I would argue that they are. And in many ways, they're, they're appropriating, as fascists always do, appropriating the, the language and the causes of the left. And one of the principal ones, and again, I, I, I hammer this point because I have personal experience with it. One of the principal ways that they do that is through the infiltration of anti-imperialism, the taking over of anti-imperialist discourse by the far right, by fascists, and then using that as a cudgel to put forward their agenda. And we see this over and over again. You see it I think probably best illustrated with the current conflict in Syria and the fact that uh, aside from uh, segments of the left that have been backing Assad, you have 
every single fascist movement in Europe and uh, fascists inside of the United States and all over the world who have really taken and latched on to the Syria issue. And the reason they have done that is for a lot of the things that you were saying earlier, Ben. Uh, Number one, of course, that Assad represents civilization against the barbaric hordes. Uh, Assad and uh, Syrians are quote-unquote, white-skinned, unlike the quote-unquote dirty Arabs of, you know, the Saudi Saudi Arabia or of uh, God knows what other country they might use. You know, in other words, that cause has now been appropriated by international fascist forces. And that is, I think, a perfect example of a broader trend of what we used to call entryism, which I think now can be called the pollution of discourse and the monopolization of anti anti-imperialism. I, I agree largely with what you're saying. I think it's a very difficult thing to have a nuanced discussion about. And it's, it's increasingly important to have a nuanced discussion about it. Um, I mean, I agree with the overall framework. And, and I think it's incredible. I agree with absolutely that the far right is co-opting anti-imperialist discourse. And in some ways, in some parts of the world, even monopolizing it. So as an example... You know, you go to parts of Eastern Europe and some of the only people criticizing NATO and criticizing the World Bank and the IMF are fascists. And that is incredibly dangerous. That is largely because the left has been completely demolished in these places. Um, And all their, you know, the only options you have are liberal imperialists or fascists. I mean, the U.S. election really mirrors that. The only options we had were a liberal imperialist or a fascist. Um, So that, that is a global phenomenon. I think on the issue of Syria, it, it is, it's complicated. I mean, I used to agree with that analysis a bit more. And I, and now, I mean, Syria is such a complex issue um, overall. And I think that the conflict has changed over the years. Um, but I, I do think that it is kind of, um, you know, the opposition at this point is so thoroughly dominated by extremists by of course you know, uh, absolutely rebel groups yeah. that that are allied with al-qaeda yeah that you know in some ways there's no question that that far-right movements throughout the world have backed the syrian government um and probably for those reasons you articulated i mean certainly because of the racist views they have etc but i think it's even more so because of their extreme opposition to muslims and in this case, I mean, they're opposing extremist groups, but they oppose Muslims throughout the board. So, of course, Donald Trump uh, is one of the only people in the U.S. who was talking sense about Syria. I mean, Hillary Clinton was calling for a no-fly zone, which everyone knew, which she herself admitted in 2013 speech to Goldman Sachs, would lead to a potential hot war with Russia, or at the very least would lead to a hot war with the Syrian government and would require you know, extensive bombing of civilian infrastructure in order to get rid of anti, um, anti-aircraft weapons. Um, so in, in, it's very dangerous that Donald Trump was monopolizing this opposition to hawkish Syria policy. That's exactly um, what I'm getting at. <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, of course, the left opposes U.S. intervention in Syria for different reasons. Um, there's no question that the Syrian government is repressive. Uh, but at this point, the U.S. has objectively been on the side of Al Qaeda for some time now, and even the Washington Post recently acknowledged in you know uh, uh, Anne Bernard a, a somewhat hawkish 
reporter acknowledged that the CIA was on the side of al-Qaeda in Aleppo. Um, and many of the rebel groups there were aligned with al-Qaeda. So there is this kind of um, international fascist solidarity against a lot of these groups. And unfortunately, what that does is uh, it lumps the entire Muslim community in uh, to this ostensible anti-imperialist discourse. So you have these people saying, yeah, we oppose uh, Western intervention in Syria, but at the same time they say, oh, we also oppose taking Syrian refugees. And, and I think that's right there, that, are, that is the accurate reflection of the ideological delineation between these two approaches. The far right, you know, these neo-fascist movements oppose Western intervention in Syria for opposite reasons, and then they refuse to give any kind of succor to uh, people who have been uh, completely, people whose lives have been completely destroyed by uh, by wars fueled by Western and and also non-Western um, foreign intervention. So I think the correct socialist and anti-imperialist and international position is yes, opposition to any kind of foreign intervention in any of these conflicts, and also support for refugees that have been displaced by these horrific conflicts. The fact um, that I, the, the fact that that's even controversial is beyond me. I mean, it's it's a, it's a no-brainer. Uh anybody on the left, any any anti-imperialist socialist or what have you, uh has to have a red line against any forms of intervention in 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 Syria or what have you. And of course, that's exactly what I'm getting at. That Donald Trump's position on Syria, that the fact that that was more sensible than Hillary Clinton's shows just how degenerated anti-imperialism has become, or maybe a better way to say that, infiltrated or monopolized by the far right. And that's precisely the problem that I'm getting at, because if you really, if you really begin to look at it carefully, look, I was lambasted endlessly. I mean, I can't even tell you how much hate mail, threats, and so forth I got going back to 2011 writing about Al-Qaeda and terrorist groups that were using the war in Syria to wage jihad, that they were backed by the United States. I could cite Every example, New York Times, June 2012 headline, CIA said to steer arms to Syrian rebels. I could highlight a million examples of that Reuters documenting terrorist training camp on the Turkish side of the border, infiltrating into Syria, using these rat lines to bring in the weapons, to smuggle in the fighters, to bring them over from Libya. All of these things well documented. I was attacked mercilessly for not, quote unquote, supporting the Syrian revolution. As this conflict has evolved and as the forces uh, that have taken one side or the other have come to the surface, what you realize is once again, you have these incredibly odious forces on both sides aligned around this what can you call it, ideological dissonance wherein anti-imperialism has now become right-wing. Well, I, I agree with your analysis and this is something that troubles me every single day and keeps me up at night, but at the same time I would I would oppose the nomenclature. Um, we, I think, partially, I just think because the far right does not oppose military intervention because it's opposed to imperialism. No, On the contrary. I just Donald want to clarify, Trump, the left, left anti-imperialists oppose it. Oh, yeah, I, I certainly see what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, jumping off of that, it's, you know, it's very clear that Trump is a firm ideological imperialist. All of these far right movements want to restore the supposed uh, halcyon days of past empire. 
Um, you know, that's that's partially what fascism is. Um, you know, I, I agree with the analysis that it's palingenetic uh, ultranationalism. It's this it's this yearning to return to a past uh, empire, at least this past glory days that often never existed. In the case of Nazism, it was returning to the glory of the Holy Roman Empire. That's why it's called the Third Reich and not the First Reich. In the case of Mussolini, it's, it's restoring the Roman Empire. So, I mean, certainly these people are imperialists, but it, it's incredibly um, troubling that they are often the ones who are on the side of opposition. They are on the side of opposition to imperialism. That doesn't make them anti-imperialist. And actually, what this reminds me of, and I mentioned this essay earlier, and frankly, I think of it all the time because it's just so precious. Um, Jay Sakai, who's a you know a, a Maoist uh, writer and you know organizer and revolutionary whose views I don't necessarily always share, but I think who's an incredibly insightful thinker, published an essay in 2002, 15 years ago, right after the 9-11 attacks, called The Shock of Recognition. And I mentioned it earlier. I mean, I, I'm not, I, uh, you know, AK isn't telling me to do this in any way, but AK Press happens to be giving away copies of the ebook Resisting Fascism, which has the essay in it now. And, and in the essay, I actually just got it up while we were talking about this. He has a very interesting line. And Sakai talks about how in, he talks a lot about the Middle East in particular, but also Eastern Europe and other places, and how in the complete absence of any kind of organized left, because that left was destroyed through massive bloodshed in the Cold War, um, the only opposition to liberal imperialism you see emerging is far-right revanchism. Exactly. And and he, he says it this way, quote, this is Sakai writing, quote, fascism has shown that it can gather mass support in many nations, the far right, including fascism, has become a popular oppositional force to the new globalized imperialism. In some countries, the far right has replaced the left as the main political opposition yep. to imperialism. Yep. So, and, and I like his language there. He's not saying they're anti-imperialist. He's saying that they are opposed to imperialism at this historical moment because we're in a particular liberal capitalist framework, mm -hmm. they want to destroy the liberal capitalist framework and replace it with a fascist imperialist framework. Um, but so in that sense, this is what I was saying earlier. In that sense, fascism is revolutionary, but not progressive. It's, it's, it's extremely reactionary. And they want to destroy the existing social order and return to quasi-feudal relations in some ways. Um, so yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head there and it's, it's very important that we have this discussion and it's, I think it's very important that, that more socialists have this discussion in, in the age of Trumpism because it's only going to become more and more prominent. And when Alex Jones, a far right racist conspiracy theorist who is a con artist who, you know, sells colloidal silver for $50 a, a vial, when he is one of the supposed voices of reason on conflicts like Syria and when ostensible leftists are calling for the U.S. to bomb a country in the Middle East, we're in a very precarious situation. Yeah, absolutely, especially when the um, 
especially when the notion of a U.S. intervention would be uh, allegedly in propping up a so-called revolution. I mean, now you've 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 polluted, uh, you know, you've muddied the waters to such a degree where the uh, ideological framework of what used to be called anti-imperialism becomes almost meaningless at that point. So uh, certainly, and just for listeners, uh, I didn't tell Ben that we was going to talk about any of this stuff. So this is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, I didn't plan on it. Uh, great, though. It's, a, it's an important subject. I think so, too. And, and look, I mean, uh, anti-imperialism has been how I've identified or, you know, the the I guess you could say, you know, the framework through which I've I've examined the world for a number of years. I've always gravitated towards that. I I I believe wholeheartedly in the terminology anti-imperialism, the history of anti-imperialism, what it meant for African liberation struggles, for Asian liberation struggles, what anti-imperialism meant going back decades and decades. So the fact that we have come to this point now where it's even a question whether the left even has anti-imperialism or uh, owns the term anti-imperialism, I think we are in, in many ways, an ideological and a political crisis on the left. And I think that uh, that's one that's one avenue through which the right has really, I think, smashed the left in, in, in a lot of ways. But I want to shift gears if I could, because we're running out of time and I know you got a place to be. So uh, let's finish up by talking about the anti-Trump uh, movement that we're seeing developing, or maybe I should say is a movement developing is probably the better question uh, because you have a lot of people uh, on the left who are out in the streets demonstrating. You have a lot of center liberals who are out there demonstrating who have suddenly, you know, rediscovered their their protest politics and rediscovered their uh, ideology after the last eight years of slumber. But the question before us now, I think, is the critical one. Do we build a movement with the actually existing forces or, as some would argue, I think I would argue incorrectly, that we need to have a uh, ideologically pure movement, one that is focused at all times on all enemies? This is, a, I think, a raging question on the left. People who are, you know, saying, like we were saying earlier, well, where were all these protesters the last eight years versus others who are saying, this is great that we have tens of millions of people out in the streets, we should welcome them and we should build something. I want to ask you, how do we negotiate between those two positions? And is there a, a bit of truth in both? And where do we go from here? I, I certainly there's a bit of truth in both. And, you know, at, at, at the expense of engaging in um, cliches, we have to be dialectical. But I do lean more toward the popular front approach. And, you know, I don't want to be too uh, fatalistic right now, but we should be very clear about the historical situation we are living in. We are seeing not only the rise of fascism throughout the world, but we are seeing the ascendance of fascism to power in multiple countries, including the largest empire on the planet. And, you know, we need to be very, very careful and we need to start organizing right now. We should have been organizing. We need to be, you know, militant and we need to be uncompromising. However, uh, there aren't enough of us to defeat fascism. And the point of a popular front historically is always that although socialism, particularly communism, has been the only thing that has ever defeated fascism, it has often done so with the assistance of liberals. Um, you know, liberals have helped create fascism. There's no question about it. There's no question that, you know, uh, 
it was social Democrats who killed Rosa Luxemburg. Uh, there's no question that it was liberals who paved the way toward fascism in Italy and Germany and elsewhere. But when the rubber hit the road, the Soviet Union allied with the U.S. and the U.K. to defeat Nazism. I mean, of course, the Soviet Union suffered the vast majority of the bloodshed in that case, 27 million deaths. But the Lend-Lease program was a very significant development. And, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, historically, unfortunately, if it were not for the support of the U.S. and the U.K., the Soviet Union probably would not have been able to make it out of World War II. So, yeah, I think today, I mean, I don't imagine that, I mean, hopefully, I, I hope in so many ways I'm wrong, but I don't imagine that we're approaching anything like World War II. Um, but we are seeing the rise of fascist forces, and we don't have the luxury of ideological purity at this point. That said, um, Hillary Clinton is not going to, I think, be an ally in a united front against fascism. <laughs> no. What we're seeing right now is not only is, is the same Democratic Party that helped pave the way to fascism capitulating, they are actively facilitating the consolidation of power of Donald Trump. Fourteen senators uh, appointed Pompeo, the CIA pick, the far-right uh, Islamophobic Christian zealot that Donald Trump has picked for the head of the CIA. Fourteen Democratic senators voted for him. And we're also seeing people like Elizabeth Warren backing Ben Carson for the, to head HUD. Like Democrats are not only capitulating, they're actually voting for the extreme far-right members of Trump's cabinet. So yes, we do need a popular front, and we may need to be allied with people who might not agree with us on some issues. But at the same time, the Democratic Party is, is continuing to not only shoot itself in the foot, but shoot all of us in the foot. And I, I don't think it'd be, just stress one more point, even though we need a popular front, that does not mean the Democratic Party. And I think that the Democratic Party has has been and continues to be beyond saving. And we do really need to build independent left-wing power immediately because life does, frankly, depend on it. I agree 1,000% with everything you said. And I think that it. I would even go one step further and say that um, on the one hand, you have the Democratic Party facilitating Trump, as you, as you correctly noted, with the uh, cabinet appointments and uh, various other ways in which the Democratic Party does what they always do, which is stab everybody in the back. At the, at the very at the very same time, except Wall Street, no, well, Never sure, Wall Street, absolutely. <laughs> um, at the very same time, you have elements within the protests who are trying to, as they always do, channel the energy of grassroots activism, grassroots protest towards what undeniably and uh, predictably will become a Democratic Party vehicle in the midterm election in 2018, and certainly in the presidential election in 2020. On the one hand, Democrats are kind of, you know, uh, you know, patting Donald Trump on the back in some ways in Congress. And at the other hand, on the other hand, they're posturing like an oppositional force on the streets through NGOs that they dominate through various satellite organizations and front organizations and so forth. And so those of us who want to build a movement to destroy fascism, to destroy Donald Trump and to block this agenda have to understand that we have essentially a two-front war. On the one hand, against the the far right that 
is in power. On the other hand, against the left liberals and and Wall Street and finance capital behind them, who will undoubtedly transform this into some you know into a cause of their own, just as they did for for those of us who were uh, involved in the anti-war movement, uh, you know, against the war in Iraq. That's exactly what happened in 2004 at the height of the anti-war protests. It was uh, MoveOn.org and all of those other organizations that translated that political capital they developed in the anti-war movement into a presidential campaign for the Democratic Party. For sure. There's no question. I mean, I couldn't have put it any better myself. And we should always be very wary of that. Um, You know, right now, uh, people are even talking about Sheryl Sandberg being a potential uh, 2020 Democratic Party nominee. I mean, it's it's absolutely preposterous. I mean, of course, another person that people are talking about, um, uh, Booker, Cory Booker from New Jersey, is a classic liberal imperialist. He also received, uh, when he was a potential VP candidate um, for Hillary Clinton, he received more donations from Wall Street than any other potential VP pick. I mean, so that the people that they're considering right now, you know, a uh, Silicon Valley billionaire or a liberal imperialist who gets large sums of money from right-wing anti-Muslim pro-Israel groups. School privatizer I mean, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Wall Street Wall Street darling who defended Mitt Romney and Bain Capital during the election in 2012. I mean, literally the worst bottom feeder the Democrats could ever put up. Absolutely. But I do think uh, a new political group that's emerged who I think will be important allies, and I think it's our responsibility to move left, is the Bernie Sanders crowd. Absolutely. And I've spoken, I've spoken with so many young people, especially young people, not only young people, but especially young people, who are, are simply um, mystified. They, they don't know what to do. They're bewildered. They recognize, rightfully, that the Democratic Party is chock full of neoliberals, of hawks, of opportunists, of shills for you know capital and they they despise what the democratic party represents and of course there's no question that they they loathe the republicans but they don't really know what to do at this political moment and you know some of them think they can take over the democratic party um and and you know bernie sanders to his credit and he has a lot of issues made it clear during his campaign that his slogan was not me us at the same time he was not a very good leader he capitulated and then endorsed Hillary Clinton. Um, he did not, I think, effectively run um, a good campaign against Trump. And now he, uh, when he endorsed Clinton, and now he's made some, in some ways, concessions. I mean, he's still opposing Trump more than other Democrats, but he's made some comments like applauding Trump for the TPP, etc. So, I mean, those that crowd is, I think, the popular front element. I mean, there are many people joining DSA and other groups I myself have a lot of criticisms of the DSA. I mean, there's objectively Democratic Socialism in America right now, his, right now, this political moment is Zionist and imperialist and has supported Western intervention and has supported Israel and does not have good anti-racist politics. There are people who are trying to take over the organization, people with very good socialist politics, many of whom are not anti-communists, and that's important, um, who are taking over, at least attempting to take over the leadership. And I think those people can continue to be moved to the left. I think when it comes, although we may have disagreements with them, I mean, I myself may have disagreements with, you know, uh, self-described democratic socialists. I, um, at the same time, I think 
they are going to be important allies and they are important allies already in what needs to be a popular front against the rise of fascism throughout the world. Um, because like, like we were discussing a moment ago, I mean, we do not have the luxury at this historical moment of ideological purity. Uh, you can't defeat fascism with a, a ragtag group of 500 people who agree 100% with your politics. Yeah, that's right. And 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 again, I mean, no one's suggesting that, uh, you know, we have to pollute our politics or dilute our ideological clarity that we've developed over many years or for many of our comrades many decades. And I certainly uh, am, you know, welcome anybody who wants to continually blast the Democratic Party and, and, and blast liberals because, uh, you know, the serial betrayals that they have uh, affected over the course of, you know, many, many years. At the same time, you're quite right. I mean, what what is required is a, a true mass movement, a true united front, one that is uh, not just in the streets for protest actions, but one that can effectively own the streets. That's really, I think that's really the key. One that can at will shut down cities, shut down industries, shut down the levers of power to the extent that any mass movement can. And just a historical point to make, and I know we're just about out of time here, but you know, in 1905, that's the really the first, the, the opening salvo of the Russian Revolution. And in 1905, when the Czars, when the Tsar's soldiers shot down those protesters and Father Gabon in the streets as they were trying to deliver a petition to the Tsar, these weren't Bolsheviks, or Bolsheviks didn't even exist at that point. These weren't, you know, radical communists entirely. This was a combination of religious liberals and 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 uh, democratic socialists, or you know, social democrats and and people farther to the left of them. This was a united coalition of people that came out against the czar's policy against the dissolving of the government and so forth and that led to what ultimately happened 12 years later and uh the you know the destruction of the monarchy and ultimately the bolshevik revolution these things happen over the course of a long period of time and they evolve in ways that are difficult to predict and if we immediately shut out our potential allies with the kind of rhetoric that i've seen from some people who in my view should know better that then raises the question of are we now shooting ourselves in the foot absolutely and i know we're out of time here too and you articulated that perfectly i'll just add one more point um we of course should be very careful and wary but i don't think we should be too pessimistic i mean i do have a revolutionary optimism and i think you know the the forces of history are on our side and uh and i i think People are organizing. They do see what's happening. They recognize the danger. And I don't think many people are going to continue to fall in the trap that the Democratic Party has set up again and again and again and again and again. Um, so many young people are completely frustrated. We see the, the enormous popularity of the movement for black lives, which has been such an important movement. And of course, there's been many strains within that movement. There are tendencies, there are revolutionary tendencies, there are reformist tendencies. But this is a global, not just national, a global mass movement now. We're, of course, seeing, you know, the Fight for 15 movement, which may have suffered a big blow. But I mean, this is, it's a sign of the reinvigoration of a labor movement. I mean, we are seeing, you know, the resurgence of these mass movements. And it's important to remember that these are the movements that emerged in the past eight years under a Democratic president. Occupy was under a Democratic administration. 
imagine what kind of ma mass movements we can build under not just a Republican, but under a far-right, extreme, chauvinist, racist, misogynist. I mean, I think we really can build some significant power. And one final point here, at the end of the day, the Democratic Party does not really have a mass base. The Democratic Party has only continued to exist in its moribund form, you know, the zombie of a party that we call the Democratic Party, because it has staunch support from international capital, from, you know, uh, the military industrial complex, from large banks. And at the end of the day, the people who are going out in the streets as participating in these mass grassroots movements are not beholden to the Democratic Party. And, and I, I don't think that that will be a difficult battle to win. The real difficult battle, of course, is going to be uh, fighting fascism. And, and like I said, I mean, I do have revolutionary optimism. And I believe that we will win, right? Absolutely. Well, the, the, the last thing to say then, you mentioned Rosa Luxemburg earlier, and Rosa Luxemburg's <laughs> famous formulation of the mass strike and the mass strike upsurge, and the way that she defined it essentially to, to, to reduce it down to something very simple, some, the, the, the mass strike is unpredictable, that it can emerge at any time, and it is only the organized revolutionary that will be able to seize on that moment and to drive the revolution forward. So the question for us now is, are we going to be organized and prepared for the mass strike moment? Uh, it's our responsibility. Well that, said. The answer to that question is up to us. Absolutely right. That's that's exactly right. Okay, we'll we'll, we'll leave it there. Uh, whoever you're going to see or whatever you're going to do, I apologize for keeping you over the time. Oh, it's ben, no problem. I ben, enjoyed it. This is much more important. Uh, ben Norton, journalist, uh, writer at Alternet. Follow his work there. Follow him on Twitter at Benjamin Norton. Ben, thanks so much for coming on the show. Glad to be here. I'd love to come back and thank you for the great show. Thanks. Listeners, as always, thank you again, and I will speak to you real soon.